This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 4th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am speaking to you remotely today. I did not feel well enough, not nearly well enough, to do anything but uh, sit here and ache. I have something called arthromyalgia, which basically, it's, it's a long way of saying the very simple uh, to grasp notion that everything on me hurts all the time. Actually, let me clarify. When I move, it hurts a lot. But when I don't move, it also hurts quite a fair bit. So I'm only really in pain during the moments of movement or lack of movement. So as you can see, the traveling to work has that verb traveling in there. It's not going to be the best move for me, for me with my arthromyalgia. It's like this virus thing. Most people have a respiratory part of it. Lucky for you, I sound great. Just in a tremendous amount of pain. Now, I did go to the doctor. I took an Uber there and I felt a little lazy about the amount of uh, effort I actually put into anything, like asking my girlfriend to open the tops of water bottles. Oh my God. But I might feel even more pathetic if I were on a Carnival Cruise because Carnival Cruise has debuted this new technology, this new medallion that you wear it on a boat and it opens all the doors and it like helps you gamble or tells you if you get lost on the boat, tells you where you are. But then this article I was reading about the medallion gets into some other benefits of the medallion and this this new lifestyle, which basically is come to the ocean and never actually have to twitch a muscle or do any amount of physical work. Here's one of the things that this medallion system will allow you to do. One feature will allow guests to watch live entertainment in ship lounges on their stateroom televisions, and the performers will know who is watching and be trained to do shout-outs. Hello to Brooks, tuning in from his bed on the promenade deck. Yeah, isn't that what our live entertainment has been missing? Like, for the people who actually go to the show, the shout-outs to the shut-ins? I mean, all these years... I've been going to Broadway shows and never has Lin-Manuel Miranda stopped and given a hidey-ho to Norm, who didn't want to actually trudge down from the Upper West Side to that particular performance. This medallion thing will also allow food to be delivered, which is good, but not just where you are, but where you're going to be. So you can let the medallion order some food between your stateroom, where of course they have room service, and the dining room, and the medallion will know what food you ordered. But if you're going to be in between those two areas, like on their on your way to the dining room, the medallion will get you some food also. And then when you're too bloated and non-motivated, you just retire to your stateroom so that the uh, jugglers can say, all right, this one's for our biggest fan who couldn't even make it out of the stateroom today. Well, who am I to say anything? 
I cannot make it out of my abode. But I will give you this interview that we did with Mara Wilson. She's the uh, former child actress from Matilda, and I certainly had a good time talking with her. No spiel today, but here's Mara Wilson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mara Wilson is sitting next to me. She, you might know her from such movies as Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda, but uh, I'm going to make a comparison. I hope she takes it in the spirit that it's intended. She's like the Jimmy Carter of thespians, <laughs> meaning we can argue about the merits of her tenure. Uh, I think historians say that the high points were very high, but perhaps the greatest post-presidency of any president. And Mara Wilson has embarked upon such an interesting uh, post-acting-on-the-screen career. Her memoir is Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. Hello, Mara. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. That is definitely the first time that I've I've been compared (laughs) to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Well, you did run that peanut farm and you were a nuclear (laughs) engineer. Yes. Yeah, I did. The parallels are crazy, right? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah, my, I I mean, I like that comparison. Uh, My father probably won't, but you know, that's, uh, that's him. (laughs) But Jimmy Carter shows up in the book, right? Yeah, actually. In a bar in Savannah. We went to a bar in Savannah where Jimmy Carter announced his presidency. Yeah. It's, Savannah is a, is a strange little microcosm. I, I love it there. It's to a, be fair, he announced world. his intention to pursue the or his present. intention his to candidacy, pursue his perhaps. Candid- yeah. And at the time, yeah. it was seen as very far fetched. Yeah. And I, as you described the bar, you can understand why it's kind of a dive. Oh yeah, that bar. That bar is it's a historical dive though, and, and, and yeah, an, an historical dive. <laughs> there were yeah, there was a guy who had a cat on a leash. Uh, was this like a hipster affectation or? It was just kind of a, I don't know, it seemed more like a young couple, you know, watching all the TED Talks about cats, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but tell us, in this bar, something happened to you that happens quite a bit. Yeah, actually, it was it was really incredible. I've had people come up to me to ask about my movies, and I think for a while it kind of made me uncomfortable because I felt... Like, I I wasn't responsible for Matilda. I felt like I wasn't responsible for the movie. It's not like I wrote it. So people would say, I like your movie Matilda. And I would think, well, it's not really my movie. I had kind of hardcore imposter syndrome. Wait, do you think that's more, you know, an acknowledgement of the collaborative nature of film and maybe people don't get this? Or is that something to do with the person you are now or were then when this conversation we're talking about took place, you, you just felt so different from the child you were. When Probably Matilda both. Yeah. Probably both. I mean, I think that my my parents sort of drilled it into my head that this is a collaborative thing. You are not the star. There's no such thing as a star. I mean, there there are, star, there are I suppose, stars. But our saying was the only stars are in the sky, you know, uh, which set me up for being the kind of nerd who watched <laughs> Carl Sagan's Cosmos on Saturday nights in college. I think I took that to an extreme. Yeah. 
I did tend to take things to extremes. So I, I sort of was like, oh, well, obviously I don't matter. Obviously I'm not really famous. Obviously nobody really cares about me. And so when, when people came up to, and recognized me as a child, I felt it felt bizarre. It felt like they were just kind of intruding into my time. It wasn't like these people are your fans, you know? And so, though, when these people in the bar talked yeah. to you. And then so we, were, we went there after my brother's wedding and this man came up to me and said, Excuse me, are you the the actress who played Matilda? I was in a good mood and I was feeling good because a lot of times when I'm recognized, it's, you know, right before I, you know, right before I get like oral surgery or right before I have blood taken or something or or when I when I have the flu, like I remember like crying after breakup and then going to Sephora because I had cried off my makeup and somebody there being like, are you that girl? You just know you're going to disappoint them. So, but I was, you know, I was looking and I was feeling good. I was happy for my brother. I was, you know, I was all dressed up and I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. And he said, oh, you know, that's my wife's favorite movie. And it meant a lot to us because it was also her niece's favorite movie and her niece passed away last year. So I went over to the woman. She was wiping away tears and she said, you know, that was something that my niece and I had in common and it was something that meant a lot to us. And we just sat and we talked and, and you know, and, and I gave her a hug and we she, – she talked about how, you know, it had kind of brought her peace and it was really nice. And that couple was so nice to us. They were <laughs> they, – they ended up like buying us all drinks and songs on the jukebox all nice and all night and we went dancing with them and we just had, you know, this really great time. And it, it reminded me that I was a part of something that meant something to people. There is the other side to that's not really my movie. This is you realizing, you know what? It's not really my movie, but in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. Than, yeah. It's definitely it belongs to the people, not just who made it, and the yeah. director, and Devito, and the and Raul Dahl, but belongs to the people who saw it and had definitely, an impact on their life. Definitely, that's the thing, you know. And, and that's that's a responsibility that I've had. You know, that's something that I'm grateful for. I felt almost like Matilda is sort of an archetype that exists somewhere. And I know that she doesn't actually exist, but it feels like she does in a way. It feels like she does. And I was just kind of paying her tribute. Yeah. That's that's the way that it feels. And I think for a while it was hard for me because it also felt like it was almost like she was my big sister and I was walking in her shadow. You know, people were getting it erases, it erases who Mara is if yeah, exactly. uh, Matilda's so big. But you said Doubtfire. I'm glad that Doubtfire was a great experience yeah. uh, as a movie. To, yeah. Mm, well, do you watch any of these things ever? I don't. I don't voluntarily watch my own movies because yeah. I'm very critical of myself. I'm very, very critical of yeah, myself. Yeah, there's, that, there's know, that part in the book where some TV movie where oh, Nicolette yeah. Sheridan's supposed to kick a soccer ball. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, she, was, she was supposed to kick a soccer ball into at the end, and it was about a woman who'd had a stroke. There was a scene, like, there was a scene where I was supposed to be upset, and I was so nervous about it that I couldn't stop laughing. You know, just sort of nervous laughter. And so they put one of the scenes, they, and they chose one of the scenes where I broke and I smiled a little bit. And I was furious because I, I was just like, no, that, that was the wrong one. They shouldn't have done that. You know, and yeah. and it and made me. Who, and this is a who cares. I mean, I know you were in it, and you should be proud of your work. But it was. But this is a lifetime. It wasn't. TV yeah. Movie. I mean, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't a thing that like millions of people were going yeah. to see. Yeah. But I was. I was upset with myself. I was very upset with myself. And also on the the filming of that, uh, they at the end of it, Nicolette Sheridan's supposed to kick a soccer ball into a goal. You know, and we're glad that she can like move and walk again. Uh, and she kicks the soccer ball, and it hits. It hit the side. Well, first, it, it just didn't go into the goal. And the director had to tell me, like, OK, even if it doesn't, just just pretend like it did, you know, just act like it did and we can cut it together later. 
And, you know, no matter what, keep doing that. So she kicked the soccer ball and it hit the side of the of the net. And I don't know sports terms at all. Goal post. Goal post, right? Yeah, yeah. let's go with goal post. <laughs> it hit the goal post yeah. and it bounced off and it hit me full on in the <laughs> chest. And I was a I was a short kid, you know, I was not very tall or very big and I it it just knocked the wind out of me. But, you know, the director had said you had to do it no matter what. So with tears in my eyes, I just said my lines and just yelled, you made it, Bob, you made it. And I went on with the rest of the scene. And then as soon as the director yelled cut, I burst into tears (laughs) and everybody laughed and applauded, you know. And then that just made me cry harder because I thought they were laughing at me. My mom was like, no, they're glad that you were professional. (laughs) Trooper. Yeah. Do you think that children actors, when when... Anna Paquin wins the Academy Award and Tatum O'Neill. And sometimes a movie comes out and a nine-year-old is praised as, you know, giving one of the best performances. And I always wonder about that. I always wonder about the craft of acting because other skills that you have to train for for years, there is no way a seven-year-old can do it as well as, you know, a professional or one of the best in the world. I think that there's something special about acting and maybe it gets to the fact that if you give an honest performance, a skilled editor and a skilled director can make it look good. But what do you think? Do you think that a great child's performance should be judged alongside, you know, um, Anthony Hopkins doing Lear or something like that? Well, the thing about child acting is children don't have the defenses that adults do. They don't have the the cynicism. They don't have the walls up that you have to create because you learn how hard the world is. You learn how difficult people can be that, you know, before you before you learn that hell of other people, you're just kind of like, all right, this is this is great. Everything's awesome. You are not afraid to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable as an adult is to take a very big risk. To be vulnerable as a child is to be a child. I do think that it's definitely admirable that there are actors out there who are children who are able to be disciplined and to learn their lines and to to work very hard because those are skills that are difficult for a child. But really what a lot of acting is, if you look at Lee Strasberg, if you look at, you know, Grotowski, if you look at any of them, a lot of it is sort of unlearning your defenses, becoming very vulnerable, becoming very open and receptive. It's uh, <laughs> it's kind of like you're giving them an award for doing the things that came easily to them as children, to being able to go into that imaginative, relaxed, open space. Yeah. I have ambivalent feelings about acting awards in general. Yeah, I do too, actually. But I do think it's weird. I mean, I have watched uh, great child performances and then I've heard the praise and I always do say to myself, there is a lot of magic to the craft, but I think it's, I just think it's different when we uh, praise a child for a lot of the reasons that you say. And a lot of times when we do give an award for the child actor, there's a lot of emoting and emotion and crying and... Uh, convey subtlety, which is sometimes some of the best acting, and you know it really well, takes a skilled okay, thespian but, to yeah, do that. Yeah, I mean that that's true of most awards, though. There's a saying yeah, that that uh, that's a saying, you know, that that Hollywood doesn't reward the best acting; it awards the most acting. Yeah, that's you know like why Uta Hagen wrote that like Sarah Bernhardt is remembered more than you know Eleanor Dusa, even though Dusa could like make herself you know live this honest experience. 
Sarah Bernhardt was the one who was, you know, emoting the most. So she's the one that's remembered. And that's something that is definitely an issue. You know, there's a lot of times it's somebody crying, it's disabilities, it's somebody, you know, going through extreme stress and putting themselves through all these things, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio did. And what you're doing when you do that, basically, is you are looking at the actor themselves and then you were looking at the transformation. So you are not looking at the actor's performance. You were looking at what they had to go through in order to do that. You were looking at the sacrifice that they made. The thing about child actors I found in my experience, and I and I definitely categorize myself as one of these two types, you are the theatrical type who are very into your emotions. You cry all the time. You you can cry, you know, at any given time. You can do that really, really well. You're, you know, you can do that. Or you are the subtle kind. And the, the subtle kind, those kids tend to have... Uh, a good ear for dialogue. They tend to memorize things sort of by rote. They can say the same line the same way over and over and over again. Like I think of like the actress who played Eleven in in Stranger Things. She could do subtlety, but she also could cry without it seeming like, you know, crocodile tears. I thought like, you know, there was a good balance there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and she was asked um, to hold it in a lot and she was given like six lines of dialogue in the whole show. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was- We concentrated so it was, on her face. Yeah, so there was definitely, she she definitely had subtlety, but she definitely had the emotions down as well. Right. You know, and a lot of those kids, I think, I think had that. And that's something, you know, and I think that's that's why they're getting praised. And I think, you know, Convention A. Wallace kind of had that too. You need that balance, but most child actors tend to be in one or the other. Do you think, uh, so the Jesuits say, if you give me the boy at seven, I'll give you the man. Do you think, knowing what you know, that I could show you, I could show you a reel, a representative reel of young actors, seven, eight, you pick a young age, and you'd have a pretty good shot of saying which ones would be good adult actors? No, I don't, because you don't know, you don't know the variables. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen in their lives. I remember people saying about me that I could have been, you know, the next Jodie Foster. And I I wonder about that sometimes, but I know that things would have had to change. I mean, I I know that I would have had to be more conventionally beautiful. I know that probably my mother, if if my mother hadn't died, maybe I would have. Uh, If I'd had different parents, that definitely would have changed things. If I didn't have a father who told me over and over again, you know, being an actress is kind of like being an athlete where you're only going to be doing it for a few years and then you need to get into other things. This is, by the way, a theme in the book, the the idea that your parents uh, grounded you. Sometimes I think maybe the grounding was a little subterranean that you had to dig out of a little more, more than grounded. <laughs> well, what do you, how, how do you mean? I don't mean, mean just put like... you down, but to the point where not, they were so intent well, on not they, allowing yeah. you to get a big head that you almost had to do some work to get past that ego Yeah, wise. well, I think that, I like I said, I think that was me taking things to extremes. Yeah. I don't blame my parents. I blame my all or nothing thinking, which, right. which I feel like I did tend to think in extremes, yeah. think in black and white. That was kind of, you know, the way that we, the way that I thought. Was this book, um, it was an enjoyable read. It answered the questions that I may have had and (laughs) uh, filled me in on stuff I didn't know. But was it to some extent, now you have this document. And so whenever people have those questions, you could just point to it and say, you know what? Read the book. It's all in there. It was definitely, that was definitely part of it. I wanted to tell people what had happened between the IMDb entries. I also wanted to prove that I could write a sentence, you know, that I could write something without a ghostwriter. And I could, I I wanted to prove that I could write, I think. And I wanted to reach out to an audience that I, I knew that I had. 
And so that was definitely something. I mean, I was working on other things first. I was working on a young adult novel. I was working on a graphic novel. I had plays. I had screenplays. I was kind of like, what do I do first? But this is what people wanted to hear about. <laughs> you know, maybe being growing up as a child star makes you, well, it makes you a lot of things, but I think it probably does make you a people pleaser. So I was like, okay, well, if this is what people are willing to listen to and willing to, I guess, pay me for, sure, this is what I will do first. And, you know, I'm not always going to just be writing about my life. There's other things I want to write about, too. And hopefully, you know, people like this enough that they will give me the chance to do that. Mara Wilson, Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. Thank you, Mara. Great to meet you. Thank you so much. Great questions. Thanks. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Chris Brewe produced The Gist. They both suffer, unfortunately, from Jamie Farthromyalgia. That is when your joints feel like a hairy Lebanese man wearing a dress in Korea. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's suffering from Darthromyalgia. That's where his joints have all gone to the dark side. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, he suffers from Bert Larthromyalgia, where his joints are screaming out, not in pain, but with the words, put up your dukes, put up your dukes. The gist, you know, we do hate to complain. But in addition to this arthromyalgia stuff, we've also got this weird thing where our muscles are wearing off-putting monster masks and playing heavy metal music sort of ironically, but really as an excuse to play heavy metal music, it's Gwarthromyalgia. Oomperu depru duperu. Thanks for listening.